0: With us today is Kevin Hancock. Kevin is the CEO of Hancock Lumber Company. It's one of the oldest and best known family businesses in America. He's the recipient of the Ed Muskie Access to Justice Award, the Habitat for Humanity Spirit of Humanity Award, the Boy Scouts of America Distinguished Citizens Award. He was the Timber Processing Magazine Person of the Year Award. We could go on and on. He's written most recently the book The Seventh Power, One CEO's Journey into Business of Shared Leadership. Uh, In in 2012, uh, Kevin was diagnosed with spasmodic dysphonia, SD as it's otherwise known. It's a rare neurological speaking disorder that made communicating difficult, and you'll hear uh, a little bit of that challenge in, in this podcast, though you'll be able to understand everything that, that the two of us talk about. And it's this partial loss of his voice, which initially was a real challenge and considered a hindrance that eventually became, in his view and in the way he led, uh, a gift and an invitation and calling to lead differently. So I'm delighted to have Kevin on the podcast. Kevin, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast.
1: Peter hello thanks so much for having me I'm happy to be here
0: Kevin can you share with us a little bit the you know your story I guess um, you know in brief because we'll go into it but you know how did you get into the CEO role let's start there
1: yeah so our company uh, is a family business that goes back to 1848 so before the Civil War and up uh, of the sixth generation of my family to work for the company, and my dad, uh, who had run the company before me, died quite young uh, in 1997, and I uh, took over the company at the age of 31, Uh, and as 31-year-olds tend to think, I was sure I was perfectly ready for it.
0: And you the, the, maybe describe a little bit, you know, just in a couple of sentences, the way you led when you first became CEO.
1: Yeah, it was very traditional. I was always present, always speaking. I was quite literally the, the voice of our company.
0: And then you became sick. You got SD in 2012.
1: Correct. It it kicked in a little bit earlier, around 2010, right at the peak of the housing and mortgage market collapse, which was a, a really difficult time for our company and industry, as I'm sure you can imagine. Did you consider leaving the role of CEO? I never, that's an interesting question, that thought never crossed my mind, but it did throw me off at first because, and I laugh about this now, Peter, but I said to myself, well, what possible good could a CEO be who can't talk all the time But it ended up bringing me, kind of forcing me into a very different approach to leadership that I've come to uh, really embrace and love and promote.
0: And so, so, so I'm, I'm very curious to talk about that. And, you know, originally, when you first got in the role, from what I've read in the book, you really defined yourself by your role. You were CEO, and that meant a whole bunch of things to you. What did it mean to you in that moment?
1: yeah well i think when you grow up in a family business and your own name is attached to the business that it's quite easy for your personal identity to become lost in the business itself and for you to really uh, wake up one day and, and feel like, well, the performance of the business is really uh, the, the measurement of myself as an individual. I just had gotten that intertwined with the company, and it's actually, I think, why I got uh, sick when the company really went through that difficult period with the housing Mortgage market collapse, I don't think I could distinguish between a wound to the company and a wound to myself. That's how intertwined the two had got. And was becoming
0: sick how you escaped that sort of role
1: definition? Yeah, because it forced me to stop and to think and to reassess, and and I began uh, during that period to do a lot more personal inquiry. You know, when it's hard to talk, you talk less. When you talk less, you're quiet more. When you're quiet more, you think more. When I thought more, that pulled me inward, <laughs> and that kind of launched uh, – uh, what turned out to be a, a really for me kind of glorious adventure and, and renaissance that I can't quite thankful for. But I didn't see any of it coming at first. It was just a you know a voice disorder that threw me off balance.
0: So Kevin, I'm so interested, I, I, I want to get to the point where you have this sort of blissful acceptance and, you know, in, inner depth that you drew from the the disease and, and, and where you are now. Uh, before we get there, I'm so interested in those very challenging, difficult, or if they were challenging or difficult, it sounds like they were. Um, transitional moments, like I want, I want to, I want you to bring yourself back to the place where you're CEO. You know, you're you're running this thing. You're on. Uh, I don't know if you're on the top of the world, but you're certainly at the top of the company. You know, you you lead by speaking, and then that's taken away from you. Like, what in those moments is going on for you?
1: Yeah, I'm a a I've been a very competitive person, so initially I just like. Dug in and kept like fighting. The the challenge was, uh, which is not the case today, but then it was really difficult to talk. It took like a major athletic feat to push out just a few short sentences. So, what I really had to do was figure out how to lead while doing a lot less talking. And um,
0: you don't feel that now, meaning it's not it's it's not a physical feat to speak.
1: I've gotten a lot better. My condition is considered incurable today. But one of my personal goals has been to help prove that it's not. And you can tell when you hear me that my voice is a bit unique, but I can talk and talk today and it doesn't really uh, bother me in any way. So I've actually recovered quite a bit across the course of a decade.
0: Okay, so I guess what's important for me to know is I'm not putting you through a bunch of pain by asking you a bunch of questions and having you answer them.
1: <laughs> That's correct. Yes. Okay, good.
0: Um so so you you lose your ability It's not like you went through this personal transformation and changed your leadership you lose your ability to lead the way you don't lose your position but you lose your ability to lead in the way that you've always led correct and how do you begin to figure out that that might be an advantage
1: yeah, i think the same way anyone else does when a when a real unexpected shock or change Shows up. It's, uh, I, mean, I would say, really by trial and error is what happened initially. When it's hard to talk, you quickly develop strategies for doing less of it. And my instinctive strategy, Peter, was simply to answer a question with a question, thereby putting the conversation right back on the other person. So if I might do a quick, simple example, people would come up to me at work because I was the CEO or the boss and ask a question. Historically, I would have provided an answer. But I now started saying, well, that is a good question. What do you think we should do about it?
0: were you afraid that you would lose credibility uh were you afraid that it would reveal that you didn't know an answer you know were you would did what what was the emotional relationship to to shifting in that way
1: yeah i didn't have any of that i think and when you think about it if if uh that had happened to you how would the people around you have who love you have responded to that they would have been super super supportive and that's what happened to me so uh, I, I didn't experience really any anxiety that way I just had to talk a lot less right you know when I when I
0: was a Knowles instructor I, I went very quickly Knowles is National Outdoor Leadership School and we ran 30-day expeditions uh, teaching leadership on them. And we, uh, I went very quickly from never having camped before in my life to suddenly leading camping trips. And, and I found that, um, I can answer any question that everybody asked me with one of three things, which is put on a hat, drink more water. And then if it wasn't something that could be answered with put on a hat or drink more water, I merely just said, uh, what do you think? and then (laughs) let them figure it out. And it turned out that those were also very highly rated leadership characteristics born from my own ignorance of, of being able to answer those questions. But I guess the answer is it doesn't matter because people want to, people have ideas, people think things and, and they end up getting more ownership when they, when they answer their own questions.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's what I experienced. What struck me after months and months of, answering a question with a question was that people already knew what to do. This is what really got me thinking differently about leadership. They didn't actually need a top-down, management-centric directive to the vast majority of questions and challenges that they faced during the course of a workday, they already knew what to do. All they really needed was the confidence and the courage to trust their own judgment and voice and a safe work culture to know that that it would be okay to make a mistake or have something they chose to do not go perfectly.
0: I think that's so profound, Kevin. And, and I, you know, I could twist it in, in more of a negative way, which is not usually my style. But, like, people ask you questions because they don't want to take ownership of the consequences of their actions. And then if you say, you know, yes, that, go do this, and they could do it, and then they're not self-responsible. And and when you – but, you know, I, I sort of prefer the way you're saying it, right, which is that we need to help people have the confidence – um, and recognize that they're, you know, that, that they that people generally act in good faith, and that um, if if they fail, they're not happy about that either. And by the way, they're a lot less happy about it if they're pursuing their own idea than if they pursue your idea. And then they could say, "Well, Kevin's idea
1: didn't work." That that so well said. So what happened in our company over time, as you can imagine, is that. Uh, accountability actually went way up because suddenly everybody was making their own leadership decisions. So when uh, leadership changes towards the perspective of sharing power versus collecting it, it does then change followership to the point you were talking about. And the one safe thing about followership is if things go wrong, it wasn't your fault because it was someone else's idea. Right. And so the, the uh, cultural ap- approach of sharing power, dispersing leadership, really, i found strengthens accountability because people are making and owning their own choices. And then we try to do that in a safe way, which is if it doesn't work out, fine we'll go back at it and and fix it or make it better right it's great i love it so it it it
0: requires a couple of things i think and i'm kind of curious how you manage that one is it actually requires competence and um good f you know good faith effort and capability among the people who are answering their own questions right meaning that confidence isn't enough you also need competence Um, because if you build confidence without competence, you're buying yourself a lot of trouble. And, and then the other question and the other piece of it is if everybody's making their own decisions, but they're not clearly unified behind a common vision and objective, and they don't all know the language I use is big arrow. Like there's, you know, like everybody's these little arrows and they're moving in all sorts of different directions. And unless there's a really clear, uh, cogent, big arrow, like a, what is the most important thing for us to achieve? How are we achieving? What are our values what, that that can guide people in making those decisions? Then you 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 risk anarchy. You risk an organization where everybody's making any decision they want to make and everything's all over the place. How do you manage those two elements that are required? And is there anything I'm missing that's required to make that happen? And I know you have a seven process model, which I really like. So, you know, we can go through that as well.
1: That's a lot of questions. Um, so, in one yeah, so glad you brought that up, though, because this is the, the fear is that this approach of, of shared leadership and dispersed power will mean uh, chaos or lack of organization and people all over the place doing whatever they want to do. And what we found uh, is just the opposite. First, to your point a company must have a really clear set of values that are super clear guideposts and a really clear mission that serves as a guidepost. And then uh, next, though, our focus has been to include employees in discussions around the most important choices that affect them. But that never means that every single opinion or answer carries the day, if we're sitting in a circle with a work team talking about an issue, there will be a variety of different opinions, and they won't all carry the day about what the immediate outcome is going to be. But what we found is that if people feel they are being included in a transparent, authentic process of making decisions, that they are much more apt to support Those outcomes, our safety director is fond of saying that people uh, support that which they help to create. So what we've actually seen by having authentic dialogue is that discipline to core systems and best practices actually improves. It doesn't weaken or fray. It actually strengthens. It's great.
0: You know, it's it's actually interesting. I was in a conversation with someone in a business and I asked them to do something and their answer was, yeah, I think that's the right thing to do. I need to ask permission. And I think if you're ever in a situation where you have to ask permission, you're probably in a a, a leadership environment that is more sort of prohibitively closed in a way that prevents people from showing up in their maximum potential.
1: I totally agree. I think that um, that the, the the great opportunity in work cultures in the 21st century is to make them safe, for people to actually say what they think, and for people to learn, act, react, and and grow, and the key to making the culture safe really um, is to reign. One of the, the thesis in my book is that throughout human history, leaders, those who have the most power have often overreached, gone too far, taken too much control, exerted too much influence, and I suggest in the 21st century, overreaching's opposite is what's needed, which is leadership restraint, which I define as having the power, but having the patience and the discipline and the trust for humanity to to not always use it. It's actually about managers learning counterintuitively, Peter, to do a bit less, not a bit more, which is a very tough kind of conceptual transition for people to make, because we're all ingrained in this idea of management is get up earlier, cover more ground, talk to more people, supervise more outcomes, and we're really trying to, to go in a, a very different direction from that.
0: Um, so I want to read you something um, uh, from you. and and then ask you a question around it. The truth is great people are everywhere. There's a sacred light that dwells within us all. Everyone has value to contribute and the ability to lead. The idea is to turn the corporation inside out. In the old model, employees were commodities that sacrificed and served the organization. In the new model, the organization becomes a conduit for serving individuals. Within a company, for example, self-actualization, one employee at a time, becomes the goal. Profit, while enhanced, is now the outcome of a higher purpose. And I love that uh, paragraph. And and I have a question about it, which is the profit being enhanced part. That's sort of a leap of faith for leaders, right? I mean, if we say our job as leaders is self-actualization of our employees, we're are, are we sort of crossing our fingers and hoping? that that self-actualization will lead to enhanced profits and a smoother running organization?
1: Yeah, perhaps. If you haven't done it, that would be the concern. So I'm really glad you asked that question. So we've been at this now for about a decade in terms of this cultural transformation along the lines of the quote that you just read. And it could well be a coincidence, but In that decade, uh, we earned more profit than we had from 1848 to 2009. Our reinvestment in our own company was more in that decade, 2010 to 2020, than 1848 to 2009. Our productivity metrics, our accuracy, our efficiency, safety went through the roof. Now, those things are multi-causational. Someone could argue uh, there's not a link, but we spent a decade uh, at this, and our results changed dramatically as now the outcome, back to your point, important outcome of a, of a higher calling. And so maybe the leap of
0: faith for leaders is more of an emotional courage one, a willingness to let go of control and trust. And and I guess if if your people aren't competent, they, they really shouldn't be there anyway, whether you're guiding them or leading them or not. And if they are, then you should give them direction and unleash them to do what they do best.
1: Correct. Totally. And And this is a tough leap to make because the momentum of how leaders have led for thousands of years is counter to this. It's been about you build empires by collecting power. You pull power into the center, and the more power you can pull to the center, the bigger, better uh, your empire becomes it. So this model is uh, advocating for the opposite. But here's the thing we have to remember. Uh, humanity evolves. So this is not an indictment on the traditional model for the time that it was in place. This is simply saying it is now the 21st century. Humanity is evolving an individual understanding of of our own sacredness on an in, on a personal level is i think the dominant theme of the 21st century and organizations are going to have to adapt their leadership approach in order to keep pace with the way humanity's changing
0: I'm curious about how you think of profits
1: uh, in the organization as the
0: leader and whether you, you know, this might be a delicate question to ask you, but, you know, you're still the, you're still hundred percent the owner. Well,
1: the, our fam- the family. family is, right. yes, correct.
0: So, so, you know, are you, so on the one hand, you know, we're, we're talking about sort of leadership serving the organization yeah and and that you know the the goal is not to have people who are you know commodities sacrificed and serving the organization. on the other hand, there's a way in which all of the workers are serving you and the family, and I'm kind of curious to know how you think about that and how the family thinks about that
1: yeah, so I guess I would say that my feeling about profit is that it is a super important outcome super important outcome of a higher calling. I think about it as the fuel that powers a company's ability to do good. The more profitable we are, the more fuel we have to go, move, do, and change. And I'm also a big believer in being really transparent with society about what happens to profit. So, You know, 95 cents out of every dollar we make or more is either going to go in taxes to government or it's going to be reinvested right back in the company. And when you really show people what happens to profit, I think people's uh, acceptance that profit is actually a universally beneficial objective uh goes w- will go will go way up everybody in the organization is better off when the company does better and everybody in the organization is worse off when the company does um worse and and if i might just add there i think that we're really in a time when we've got to think differently about winning and losing You know, that traditional model winning has meant someone has to lose. You know, workers versus corporations, empire versus empire, religion versus religion. But in this new age we're in, where this planet is so uh, connected, there is no winning anymore that doesn't include everybody. And the idea that corporate success um, doesn't benefit everyone and shouldn't benefit everyone to me is an outdated um, way to think about corporate performance
0: you know again this might be an awkward question but it's really coming out of this place of curiosity of how the the sort of leadership philosophy plays out do do people do workers in the organization do people know how much you and the family make
1: we Definitely. We are very transparent about um, the profit performance, and everyone in the organization has incentives tied to the profit performance. Right. So everyone's uh, income moves together, and our ability to keep improving the workplace through reinvestment moves with it as well. I find it's better to be transparent about all of that than protective or secretive because that really fits, again, the the shared um, leadership approach. Everyone really needs to see and understand these things that used to be like the secret uh, corporate center black box of books for the company. That stuff needs to be out there and shared.
0: Have you have you had have you faced employees who are resentful of what you are making or the you know or no that that you know it's it's more of a shared experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a I, I, I'm not so naive to think that that every single person always thinks it's great, but it, you know, our engagement. Uh, levels now are running close to 90% in a country where engagement is below 33%. So right. nearly nine out of 10 employees will self-define their experience at Hickok Lumber as being uh, super meaningful to them, and that's really what I go by. What is the seventh power? So the seventh power, the idea, it's the individual human spirit. It's about turning inward to find strength, every human being, turning inward to find solutions. It's an individual-centric approach to communal health, and it's about leaders thinking about individuals before Um, the entity itself. Now, where I saw this, I've spent a lot of time on the um, Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. It's a place I've been over 20 times. And one of my early trips there, I had someone show me the Lakota Medicine Wheel, which honors the six great powers, uh, the West, North, East, South, sky, and Earth. But that individual then showed me that those Uh, who still remember the old ways of the Sioux, know that at the center of that wheel, a seventh power exists. And that seventh power is you. It is me. It is the individual human spirit. So the seventh power to me is like that iconic um, Rudyard Kipling line, the strength of the pack is the wolf. And the idea that if every individual is speaking with their own true voice, and being their authentic self, and living in a way that makes that person light up, that that is the best way to make a family, a community, a company, a state, a nation, or a planet thrive.
0: And you have in your book, The Seven Lessons uh, for the Age of Shared Leadership. Is that um, you know the the your format is not east west north south uh, earth sky uh, individual, but are those seven lessons in some ways reflective of those uh, the the sort of seven directions?
1: Well, they are, yeah. So I had you know I had a bit of a personal awakening thanks to my voice condition, I, then. Uh, we then turned that into a bit of a corporate awakening. I'm like, well, could this actually be applied to an entire company? Went at that for a decade, concluded it could. So Then I said to myself, well, got greedy in the best sense of the term. Well, could this be applied to an entire planet? So this book is a bit of a travel adventure that goes out in search of kind of validation or further learning about this idea of dispersed power. The book begins on the Navajo Reservation, east of Flagstaff, on the edge of the Colorado Plateau, and it makes seven stops, ending up in Kiev, in the Ukraine of all places, where at each stop I pick up what I believe is a different lesson or fundamental component of uh, the age of shared leadership. I love that.
0: and um, and so one of the questions is, you know you had this awakening because of SD and how it impacted your voice and your ability to lead in the way that you had always led. What you're hoping is, Um, Other people can have this transformation without necessarily getting SD or without getting sick or without having, you know, some uh, something that they consider to be an essential element of who they are taken away from them. Um, Have you found that to be the case? Meaning can 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 the rest of us, you know, is it reasonable to think that the rest of us can go through this, you know, whatever transformation we need to go into without necessarily going through the illness or the suffering or the challenge, you know, of, of something dear taken away.
1: Yes, I definitely believe that is the case. Have seen it time and again now, but also believe that leaders, my, my book in some ways is really a call to leaders, that leaders can really, really help transform the planet by creating a new culture within their organizations that encourages the individual human spirit and that makes it safe for people to, to look inward and to find their own strength and voice and, and to pursue it. That We really can accelerate this uh, by leading differently.
0: We have been speaking with Kevin Hancock. Uh, He is the CEO of Hancock Lumber and also the author of The Seventh Power, One CEO's Journey into the Business of Shared Leadership. Kevin, thank you so much for your openness and generosity and the journey that you're on and your willingness to share it with us.
1: Well, thank you, Peter. I'm really appreciative of you having me on and, and helping to share my voice. Thank you.
0: Well, we've enjoyed your voice. Thanks for being on the Bregman Leadership
1: Podcast. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free Leadership Gap Assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.